Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Despair's Last Journey is a novel by David Christie Murray, a British journalist and novelist. The book was first published in 1901. The novel is a thrilling adventure story about a character named Jack Ketch who, after being released from prison, decides to lead a decent life but continually faces challenges due to his past. The book includes themes of redemption, love, and resilience against the odds. The narrative revolves around Jack's life, his struggle to reform himself, and the societal reactions he faces due to his previous actions. The detailed plot summary may vary based on the particular edition or interpretation, and the richness of Murray's works often lies in the details of character development and dialogue. For a deeper understanding, it would be best to read the novel in its entirety. If you enjoy our program, Please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 1 The first hint of memory showed a hearth, a fire, and a woman sitting in a chair with an outstretched finger. An invisible hand bunched his petticoats behind, and at his feet was a rug made of looped fragments of cloth of various colors. He lurched across the rug and caught the finger with a sense of adventure and triumph. Somebody clapped hands and laughed. Memory gave no more. Then there was a long, narrow, brick-paved yard, a kind of oblong well, with one of the narrower sides broken down. The bricks of the pavement were of many colors browns, purples, reds. They were full of breakages and hollows, and in rainy weather small pools gathered in the petty valleys. The loftiest boundary wall had once been whitewashed, but was now streaked green and yellow with old rains. A pump with a worn trough of stone stood halfway up the yard, and near it was a boy, a very little boy, in petticoats and a yellow straw hat with ribbons. The frock he wore was of some tartan pattern with red and green in it. He had white thread socks and shoes with straps across the instep. The straps were fastened with round glass buttons, and the child, with his feet planted close together, was looking down at the buttons with a flush of pride. He was conscious of being prettily attired, and this was his first remembered touch of personal vanity. He was walking and crying in an old-fashioned village street, crying because his fat small thighs were chafing one another. It was Sunday or a holiday, for his father was in a tall silk hat and black broadcloth and high collar, 
and a satin stock which fastened with a shiny buckle high up in the neck behind. His father stooped and lifted him and carried him all the way to an old house with three front doors and porches over the doors and a cage with two doves in it hanging on the lichened wall. There was a hedged garden opposite the house with four poplars in the hedgerow. Their tops went right into the blue. Inside the old house was an old gentleman who was called Uncle. Round the room he sat in were hung a number of fiddles in green baize bags. How he had learned what the bags held the child could not tell, but he knew. The old gentleman took him on his knee and allowed him to touch his whiskers, which were crisp and soft, and snipped pieces of white paper into the shapes of trees and animals and houses with a little pair of scissors. He had blue veins on the back of his white hands and little cords the like of which were not on the child's, as examination proved. This was his first memory of any house which was not home. There he first saw a piano. It was open and he beat the keys, sounding now one note at a time and now two or three together. This was a fascinating exercise, but he was bidden to desist from it and was given a picture book to look at it was full of wiry looking steel plates of men in cauldrons and on crucifixes and on racks and bound to stakes and fires. He remembered it as Fox's Book of Martyrs, but by a later knowledge. There was a well in a yard with a rope and a windlass and an old wooden bucket all over trailing green mosses. Off the yard there was a blacksmith shop with a disused anvil and disused tools in it and a cold hearth covered with scattered slack and iron filings. A dog whose chain allowed him to come within a yard of the door of this workshop woke up at the clink of the tools and barked. The child cried until his mother came and took him away with some show of angry impatience, not with his father's gentleness. He knew her for his mother, of course, but this was his first remembrance of her. It was baking day, and so it could not have been a Sunday. In a big gel of earthenware that was the local word for a day batch of dough was set before a fire to rise. It had a clean cloth spread over it and the dough had been slashed across and across with a knife. Somebody said the sign of the cross was made to keep the devil out of the bread. There was a vague wonder at that, but it soon died. A portion of the dough was used to make what were called rough and ready cakes. Dripping was rolled into the dough and it was sprinkled with sugar and currants. Then it was pulled into all manner of rough shapes so as to bake with crisp edges and was put on a greased dripping pan into an oven. The cakes were served hot with new milk and made a regal feast. It grew dark which for summertime was a new experience. The child, tired but wakeful, stood at the door in fear of the dog. Suddenly he roused the household with screams of joy. Mother! Mother! Look what I've found! There was a rush and a swirl of petticoats.
The infant had seen the stars for the first time and had some trouble in explaining the nature of his find. When it was known that he had discovered the solar system and its neighboring fragment of the universe, there was a laugh and he was left alone, humiliated. I have made many equally valuable and original discoveries since then, said Paul Armstrong, and so went on staring down the cannon, seeing nothing of what lay before him, but beholding his child self so clearly that he seemed to be living over again the life of forty years ago. The child was shy, dreamy, sensitive, inventive, and a liar. He and his brother Dick were together walking in the shabby high street and talking about cricket. I'll bet you haven't seen what I've seen, said Paul. He was seven years old by now, breached in corduroys, which had had time to grow rusty. The middle-aged man, sitting at his tent door, smelt the odor of the new cords and heard their disgusting whistle as he moved his limbs in them for the first time. Only the poorest boys went clothed in corduroy and Paul and Brother Dick were bitterly lowered in their own esteem when they were forced by motherly economy into that badge of social servitude. I'll bet you haven't seen what I've seen. What have you seen? Asked Dick. He was rather a fatuous boy with round, innocent eyes easily opening at tales of marvel and a temptation to a liar. Why, when I was in Scotland three years ago with father, Paul began, I saw the Highlanders play cricket. He had never in his life been a mile away from his native parish and Dick knew that as well as he did, but it made no difference. They wore kilts and father wore a kilt and had a feather in his bonnet and top boots like Robin Hood, all loose about the tops and a bow and arrow. And he smoked a cigar and gave me a whole lot of Vesuvians to strike by myself behind a tent. You could smell Vesuvians and cigars and sunshiny trod on grass everywhere. Tell us about the Highlanders, said Dick. They was all ten foot high, said Paul. They wouldn't have M in the eleven without they was ten foot high. Dick said that stood to reason. And they played in their kilts, and they didn't wear pads, and they had their bats all made of iron, and the ball was iron, too. It was a cannonball, and they fired it out of a cannon, and the wickets was a mile and a half apart, no, a mile and a quarter, and one man hit the ball, and the other men shouted, run it out, and he ran sixty-four runs. Then he dropped down stone dead and Mr. Murchison read the funeral service. Then the talk drifted. Next Sunday, the Reverend Roderick Murchison and me read out from the pulpit a text which gave over all liars to fire and brimstone. Paul went quaking all day. Dick and he slept together in a gaunt attic chamber. Mary, their sister, Twenty years Paul's elder saw them to bed, put them through a rough form of prayer, and took away the candle. Dick, with nothing on his conscience, went to sleep. Paul lay and sweated, dreading fire, 
and wondering with open-eyed horror why brimstone and imagining extraordinary terrors from its addition. At last conscience would have known they and brimful of fear and contrition for the one was as real as the other he woke up Dick in the black hollow of the night this was hard work but he was bent on self-purgation and would not confess until Dick was really wide awake. Dick, he said, gripping his brother in the dark and straining him in his childish arms. Dick. Oh, Dick, I've been a liar and I daresn't go to sleep. Do you remember what I said about the Highlanders last Thursday? Blow the Highlanders, said Dick. What did you wake me up for? It wasn't true, Dick, the penitent whimpered. I never saw a Highlander and father didn't take me to Scotland with him. It was all made up. I know that, said Dick. You are a fool to wake a chap up in the dark to tell him that. That was the child's first remembered penitence and confession. The man remembered how he had sobbed himself to sleep. Why had he lied and was a portion his in the lake of fire and brimstone and what was the good of being repentant and confessing and being called a fool for one's pains? When the childish Paul came out of the kitchen door into that three-sided well of a brick paved yard and walked towards the printing office at the far end of the narrow strip of garden, the first door beyond the pump trough led him to a flight of stairs. The flight of stairs, dirty and littered, mounted to a lumber room where there were great piles of waste paper refused from the shop and office. There were many torn and battered old books here and most of them were deserving of the neglect into which they had fallen. The father had bought old books literally by the cartload at auction and had weeded from the masses of rubbish such things as promised to be saleable. The rest were Paul's prey and there were scraps of romance here and there and fugitive leaves of Hans' everyday book and the penny magazine with dingy woodcuts. One inestimable bundle of leaves unbound held the greater part of Peregrine Pickle, the whole of Robinson Crusoe, and part of the devil on two sticks. Brother Bob, dead and gone these many years, had once kept pigeons in that lumber room and had driven a hole in the wall so that the birds might have free going out and in. This was one of the family remembrances. Before there had been so many mouths to fill and so many small figures to be clothed, there had been room in the Armstrong household for some things which were not wholly utilitarian. This keeping of pigeons was, as it were, a link with a golden past, a bright thread in the tapestry of the bygone, which hung on the eye of imagination in contrast with the sordid present, where few of the threads were bright except to the inexhaustible fancy of a child who can see brightness almost anywhere. The lumber room had many memories for the dreamer in the tent door. He was often banished there for punishment and he sometimes confessed to faults which were not his if they were not of too dark a dye in the hope of being sent thither. There he would grub amongst the moldy refuse of the place 
and would find treatises of forgotten divines on Daniel and the end of the world, and translations of Ovid on the art of love sadly mutilated by rats, and nautical almanacs of a long bygone date, and much other doubtful treasure. The mother came into the brick-paved yard and shrilled Paul. Paul lay quiet. The voice called up and down and was lost in the recesses of the heaped timber in the yard which lay beside the ill-kempt strip of garden. The hedge which had once divided the neighboring domains was broken down in many places and Paul and his brother played often on the timber stacks and in the aromatic groves of sawn planks which inclined towards each other in row on row, making an odorous cloistered shade excellent for enacted memories of Chingachgook and Ankis and the Pathfinder. There was a soppet in the yard, a favorite hiding place for the boys, and the turpentiny scent of fresh sawdust had always been a thing to conjure within the solitary's memory. The smell of printer's ink which hung about the dowdy, untidy, bankrupt printing office had a hint of it. Years afterwards and years ago in the studio of the president of the Belgian Academy when Paul was famous and on easy terms with famous people, a servant uncorked a tin of turpentine to clean his master's palate and the soppet yawned again and every broken brick in the floor of the old office showed so clear that he could have drawn the finest crevice. The odor was in his nostrils now as he sat at the tent door and he did not dream that it sweated from the sun-smitten pines. It was all memory to his fancy and the voice went shrilling Paul among the timber stacks and was lost in the cavernous shed at the far end of the yard. Then everything went quiet for an hour and Paul made acquaintance with the poverty-stricken artist who could not take his mistress to the ball because she had no stockings fit to go in and who hit on the expedient of painting stockings on her legs. How simply and innocently comic the episode was to the child's mind, to be sure. And how harmless were the naughtiest adventures exposed under the lifted roofs when the lame devil waved his crutch from the top of the steeple. But in the full tide of this retired joy Paul hears a step at the bottom of the lumber room stairs and knows it for his mother's. She is coming here and there is no hiding place for anything bigger than a rat. The motherly temper is sharp and the motherly hand is heavy. He has been called and has not answered a crime deserving punishment and sure to earn it. The step grows nearer and trouble more assured. Suddenly a ray of hope darts through him and he feigns sleep. His heart labors but he keeps his breath regular by a great effort. Mother gazes for a minute and goes away on tiptoe. There is quiet for five minutes and Paul is back in fairyland. But mother is here again on tiptoe and the voice of doom sounds on his ear. I thought you was foxing, you little beast. Then Paul takes his thrashing as well as he can, aiming to receive most of it on his elbows and is in bitter disgrace for days and days. The phenomenally guilty and degraded young ruffian who acted a lie, a far viler thing, it would seem, than to speak one. 
this is the worst of the household to the solitary's mind that all combine in prolonged reprobation for any crime of his. He has no memory for Dick's offenses or Jack's or David's, but Dick and Jack and David are unforgetting and the girls sniff unutterable holiness and contempt. He knows he is a liar and he knows that liars have their portion in that awful lake, but he is high-spirited and fanciful and he forgets, sealing his doom weakly at the least and making it more sure. This reputation of liar began when Womwell's menagerie of wild beasts first visited the parish and the neighborhood of lions and tigers so flushed his imagination that he saw them everywhere. He came home one day with a story of a tiger running away with the shop shutters of a neighboring grocer on his back. He was chastised for this gratuitous unwarrantable yarn and stuck to it perhaps he had dreamed it and believed it true, but on that point memory was silent. Anyway it was fixed and decided that he was a liar and a liar we can ne'er believe, though he should speak the thing that's true. So nobody believed Paul under any conditions, not even when truth was crystalline. He was a little older, a very little older, and he lay in bed one moonlight night in summer. He had been to chapel that Sunday evening and the Reverend Roderick Murchison had preached a sermon from the text to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul's small soul was filled to the brim with a sort of yearning peace. The moon yearned at him through the uncurtained window of the bare attic chamber and he longed back to it. Oh, how sweet, how sweet to pass to peace forever, to lie asleep forever with the grass and the daisies for a counterpane and yet to be somewhere and would wake and happy. Suffer little children to come unto me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Paul was of the kingdom for a time, but he had the blundering ill luck to mention it. He put his arms round Dick, who lay awake there, and he cried and said goodbye and told Dick that he was going to die and be an angel. And in his heart he forgave Dick nebulously, but with sincerity not particularizing things, but offering plenary grace for all offenses. And Dick took fright and ran with bare legs projecting from his scanty nightshirt and blubbered that Paul was dying that he said so, that he was sure of it. And Paul, listening at the top of the stairs, heard the news given and forgave everybody and went back to bed again and was filled with inexpressible joy of assured longing. The good mother came upstairs carrying Dick who had been solaced with unaccustomed supper of bread and treacle he was sticky and crummy with it hours afterwards when Paul still lay crying and she gave Paul such a hiding for his heartless wickedness as he had never had in all his days till then. It was not the pain of the flogging, though he had been chastened with a liberal hand that kept him in tears throughout that wretched night. It was the bitter sense of injustice for Paul had imputed his dream to himself for holiness and had believed so truly and had meant so well. And the matter did not end there Paul had slept on his trouble and had forgotten it as children can. He was stripped to the waist 
and was taking his morning wash at the sink in the back kitchen when his father came, carrying in his left hand an instrument called the Taz, a broad flat leathern strap cut into strips at one end. The strips had been hardened in the fire and the Taz was a holy horror to the boys who saw it often and were threatened with it sometimes but who had felt it never. Armstrong the father came in pale and gray, his hands quivering, and he gave Paul a little sermon. The ineradicable Ayrshire accent shook out in his voice more strongly than common, for he was an idle dreamer and a man who hated to see pain and to whom it was an agony to inflict it. This will hurt me far more than it will hurt you, my lad, said Armstrong Sr. and Paul by a swift, sidelong movement of the mind, decided that he had been born a liar because his father was one before him. Then the father expanded upon the enormity of his wickedness and told him how he had shamefully trifled with the thought of death, which was the most serious of all things, and how in his vanity he had tried to alarm his brother, and how this evil lying spirit must be beaten out of him. Paul was silent, for how could he explain? And the kindly father, who had had to work himself up to this cold-blooded severity, went half hysterical when he had once begun and overdid the thing. Paul's flesh ached and stung and quivered on his bones for days. A fortnight afterwards, when he went to bathe, having forgotten his flogging, his stripes were seen and a schoolmate christened him Tiger on account of them. To that day there were people who knew him as Tiger Armstrong, though they had forgotten the reason of the nickname. This was one of the inconveniences of having a reputation. There were more such doleful comedies in the lonely man's mind as he looked down the gorge. The scenes came back as if they were enacted before him. The old eight-day dock ticked in its recess. The fire rustled and dropped a cinder, the cat purred on the hearth, Paul sat reading, absorbed, and yet in memory he knew of the cat and the dock and the fire, and even of a humming fly somewhere, and a gleam of sunshine on the weather-stained whitewash of the wall outside. And came Mrs. Armstrong, with the little household servant at her heels, and laid something on the ledge of the old clock face. She was an uncommonly tall woman and had a knack of putting things on high out of other people's reach. That's for the potatoes, she said, run and get em as soon as ever you've peeled the turnips. Yes, ma'am, said the girl, and they both went out together. Two or three minutes later Paul went out. His father sat behind the counter of the shop and Paul was afraid that if he went that way he would be seized upon and compelled to take his place. So he ran up the garden, climbed a wall or two, and dropped into Badger's field. He had not gone twenty yards when he found a halfpenny lying on the grass. He laid hands on it and made for the confectioner's where he expended it on a sickly sweet called paper sucky treacly, sticky abomination with a spiral of old newspaper twined about it brother Dick appeared by chance and shared the treat. Paul at this time had taken to making verses on his own account 
and cited by a great deal of miscellaneous reading. This was an exercise which demanded quiet and retirement and he got away into the fields and, lying face downwards on the grass, gave himself over hand and foot to fancy. It was quite late in the afternoon when appetite brought him to himself. He had forgotten his dinner, but relying on his ability to filch something, he walked home with a light heart he marched innocently through the open door of the shop. Paul. His father stopped him, his spectacles tipped up into his white hair, and his gray eyes half hidden under eyebrows like a shaggy scotch deerhound's. The portrait of Sir Walter's maid had a strong suggestion of the Scottish face, wistful, affectionate, and full of simple sagacity. Just now the gray eyes looked doom. Paul knew he had done something awful and felt guilty though he knew nothing as yet of the charge against him. What hae ye doing why the thrippany bit ye stole this morning? What thrippany bit? said Paul. I haven't seen no thrippany bit, father. The verse he hammered out in his lonely moments was grammatical because his exemplars would have it so, but to have been grammatical in common speech would have seemed like a pedantry. The thrippany bit your mother put on the clock ledge, ye palfrin vagbond, said his father sternly. I never seen it, Paul declared. There, there, said Armstrong, it comes natural to lie, and I'll not tempt ye. Not another word. You'll go to your chamber, and you'll stop there till ye're in the mind to confess. There's the fruits of your crime marked on your lips this minute, and Dick saw ye at the sweet stuff shop. Away with ye, before I lay hands on ye. Paul's hobnailed boots went lingeringly up the uncarpeted stairs to the attic room, and there he spent the long, long afternoon. There was nothing to do, nothing to think about, nothing to read. He stared at the tenant's shop opposite, and at the cheesemonger's fat widow, and at the window of the Berlin wool shop next door to the cheesemonger's, and when a customer went in he speculated idly on his purchase. He was very hungry and lonely and dull, and the three other attic rooms which were open to him were as uninteresting as his own. Evening came on, and he seemed to be forgotten. He took off his boots, and crept to the lower flight of stairs and listened. Everything was going on just as it would have done if he had not been alone and miserable and martyred well. He could starve and die and go to heaven and then perhaps they would all be sorry and discover some little good in him. Evening deepened into night and still he sat there. A little insect behind the wallpaper against which he leaned his disconsolate head ticked and ticked like a watch. Paul had heard of the death watch and this, of course, was it and its token was, of course, of his own untimely end. He wept luxuriously. By and by he got up and crept on tiptoe past the door of the best bedroom which stood a little open 
and invited him inwards by the mysterious gleam on the ceiling and the thrilling shadows of the great four-poster with its dusky hangings a family heirloom, hint of far-off family prosperity, big enough for a hearse and quite as gloomy to look at. A heavy, solid mahogany chest of drawers stood near the window, and Paul, aided by the gaslights glistening amongst the polished tinware in the shop opposite, went through every drawer. His hands lighted on something done up in tissue paper and oblong parcel. He investigated it, and it turned out to be a big sponge loaf. He had seen one like it before, and guessed that it came as a gift from the old maid cousins at the farm. He pinched off a bit from one of the bottom corners, and nibbled it he had not known till then how hungry he was, and the cake was more than delicious. He pinched off more, and was frightened to find how much he had taken. Detection was sure, and who but he could be suspected. Nothing could save him now, and though he had never heard either proverb, he acted on both in for a penny, in for a pound, and as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb. A voice and a footstep below startled him, and he fled guiltily. Now he was a thief, and then he was a beleaguered citizen, forced to make excursions by night and live at risk of life on the provisions of the foe. He lay on the bed and watched the lights on the ceiling until the cheesemonger's shop and the tenants were closed, then he went to sleep, and in a while Dick came and awoke him. You'll get nothing to eat till you confess, said Dick, and then you'll get a licking. Then I shall die, said Paul. I shan't confess what I never done. He undressed and got into bed and was more of a Christian martyr than he had ever been before. He slept fairly well, all things considered, but when in the morning his father's deep, asthmatic cough sounded on the stairs, he felt as if his heart had slipped through his spine and had dropped upon the floor. He sat up in bed as his father entered the room. Well, sir, are ye in any mind to tell the truth yet? I didn't take it, father, I never seen it very good, you'll just stay there. Dick, with his hair staring from his head in all directions, pulled on his boots and trousers and, gathering his other belongings in both arms, went off to make his toilet in the back kitchen. The heavy day began for Paul, and when he had dressed he prowled disconsolately about his prison limits. In the ceiling of one of the back rooms there was a trapdoor, and he began to wonder if he could open it there was a crippled three-legged table in the next apartment and two old chairs, the rush bottoms of which had given way. He lugged these beneath the trap and mounted. He had two or three tumbles and anything but a cat or a boy would have broken its neck several times over, but at last he succeeded in forcing the trap and scrambled up. The joists of the roof and the roughened side of the slates were all he saw at first, but in a while he discerned a solid-looking shadow in the near distance and made towards it. It proved to be a small table, and on it, covered thick with dust, were a broken jug, a broken cup, and a broken table knife. 
What brought these things in so curious a place Paul never knew, but there they were, and the spot in an instant was a robber's cave and full of the most palpitating and delicious fears. He seized the broken table knife as a weapon and dashed back towards the trapdoor. His movement towards the table must have taken him over some protected place some region where a wall or beam made the lathan plaster flooring sound beneath his feet. But in his backward dash he missed this. The thin and fragile stuff gave way beneath him and he came through with a tearing crash and fell on the floor of the room beneath with a shock which snapped his teeth together and left him dizzy and half stunned. There was a big rent in the ceiling and the floor was covered for a square yard or two with hairy plaster and fragments of wood. Paul thought at first that he was broken all over but, coming to gather himself together, found himself whole. He transferred the crippled table and the chairs to their original places and stowed away the knife between the cords and the mattress of his bed. Then he listened dreadfully to discover if the noise of his fall had awakened any answering commotion below stairs. Growing easy on this point, he began to be aware that he was hungry again and bethought him of the remnant of the sponge loaf. Nothing much worse than had already happened could befall him and after brief temptation he kicked off his unlaced hobnails and stole downstairs. With some such vague idea of disguising crime as a thievish monkey might have had, he packed up a pair of neatly folded towels in the paper which had once held the loaf and so retreated to his prison. All day long the familiar noises of the house, exaggerated into importance by his own loneliness, went on. Feet traveled here and there, voices called, the tingling shop bell rang. The little servant came to make the bed and treated him with the disdain which befitted a convicted criminal. In a while she went away and left him lonelier than before. Even disdain had something of human companionship in it. And now, hunger's pangs having been fairly well appeased by the remnant of the sponge loaf, Paul had time to surrender himself to the thought of impending starvation. He convinced himself that a boy could die of starvation in two days. Morrow at noontide would see him stark and cold. He grew newly holy at this reflection and forgave everybody afresh with flattering tears. It became a sort of essential that he should leave a memorial on the wall of the cell in which he was about to perish and so he got out the broken knife from under the mattress and carved a big cross in the papered plaster of the wall. It was less artistic in its outline than he could have hoped, but its symbolism, at least, was clear and he wept and exulted as he worked at it. The heavy day went by and the heavy night and he began to be really hollow and to believe with less than his original sense of comfort that his end was near. With the morning came his father with yesterday's question. Paul broke into wild tears and protests. He wasn't, wasn't, wasn't guilty. Very good. Yell just stay there. Dick, 
touched by the agony of despair with which Paul threw himself upon the bed, advised surrender. What's a lickin', said Dick. Have it over. Oh, Dick, cried Paul, clipping at the air between them, plead for me. Not me, said Dick, who was less literary than Paul and misunderstood the unfamiliar word bleed for yourself. And again the heavy day went on, and Paul wept and wept alone. But it happened that this was scouring day, and a sort of wooden fender which fenced in the foot of the eight-day clock being moved, the missing bit of silver was found behind it, and the martyr was released. There were no apologies, but Paul was told to clean himself and was whispered by Dick that there was a tea party that afternoon and that he was to be allowed to be present at it. Then fell misery. He knew why the sponge loaf had been saved and though everybody was kind now and seemed to feel in an unspeaking way that he had been ill-used, he foresaw the near future and trembled. He had been made to black his Sunday boots he had been washed with such desperate earnestness that his face and neck tingled and he diffused an atmosphere of yellow soap as he walked. He was in his best clothes, which fitted him as a sausage is fitted by its skin. He was guillotined in a white collar with a serrated inside edge and guilt filled every crevice of his soul. Fanny and, said Mrs. Armstrong, putting the last finishing touches to the tea table, fetch the sponge loaf. A rollicking shout of laughter rose from the tent door and went rolling down the gorge and the dream was over for the time.